Good morning. How we doing? Can you hear me outside? Good. I didn't hear any honks right next to the door. It might be safe for me to peek out. Hi. Good morning, all. Got to give a little love to the parking lot crew. It's good to see them. And we got a Zoom crew here, too. So, Amanda, good morning. <laughs> Just making, making the preacher rounds. All right, so uh, we are continuing our series, The Unity Dreamers. And uh, if you're just tuning in or if you've been with us, we are taking a stroll down memory lane, so to speak, looking at some of the roots of our movement. I'm doing this, I'm taking the time to do this for a couple different reasons. One, I think by looking at these things, it can inspire our faith and help give us direction for our day and time. Even though our circumstances are sometimes different, there are common things that are problems that humanity faces and uh, there's a certain tenacity of these early re uh, restoration movement guys, a uh, fire that they had toward Christian unity based on the Word of God and based on scriptures. I think it's valuable to us. We're not, if history's not your thing, we appreciate you indulging us. We're not going to do this forever. We'll get into a good textual sermon uh, using the Bible, a whole lot more coming up. So, I know this is a stretch for some of us, and I appreciate your indulgements in, in, in this series. So, All right. Whew. I'm losing my breath already. What's going on? Well, you would think if this restoration impulse, if it was really the work of the Holy Spirit uh, behind all of this, pushing all of this, um, this desire to go back to the simplicity and vitality of the early church. You would think that if this desire was initiated by the Spirit, that it would involve multiple people, that it would involve different groups, and that it would spread out in different locations. So last week we talked about a two-and-a-half-year separation between a father and a son, Alexander Campbell, the younger guy there, and Thomas Campbell, his father. Uh, even though they were gone for, from each other for two and a half years, when they came back together, they had reached very similar conclusions regarding the need for significant church reform. And then we've been following some the story of Barton W. Stone and his restoration desires. But in the opening decades of the 1800s, Stone and the Campbells had absolutely no knowledge of each other whatsoever. They are completely different people from completely different circumstances in completely different locations arriving at surprisingly similar conclusions. And interestingly, to me anyway, Stone and the Campbells were not the only, only unity dreamers of their time. They weren't the only ones having these thoughts. Last week I mentioned something about uh, these reformers here uh, uh, out of the Church of Scotland. 
uh, who influenced Alexander Campbell, a restoration movement they started in the 1790s, the brothers Robert and James Alexander Haldane. Well, the Haldanes came out of heavy Calvinism and the Church of Scotland and started planting independent Christian churches. And they, they were convinced that there shouldn't be church government above that of the local congregation. And they also started other different practices that they thought uh, were important and differed very significantly from the church practice that they were used to. So they began weekly observance of a Lord's Supper. And then as they continued in this process of restoration, they became convinced that the New Testament church didn't sprinkle infants. And so they began practicing baptism by immersion. Well, a full decade before the Stone Movement uh, started planting restoration churches, this guy, James O'Kelly, rocking the big beard there, a North Carolina farmer who had become a lay preacher for the Methodist Church uh, during the Revolutionary War, he was already well along in uh, the church planting movement that he had started. I think 20,000 churches by the time, or 20,000 members uh, in the O'Kelly movement by the time uh, Barton W. Stone was just getting started. And he split from Methodists over church government issues and formed for a while what was called the Republican Methodist Church. Well, in 1794, the church agreed that the biblical plan for church government was to ordain elders over each congregation. And it was at this time that they decided to drop the name Republican Methodist and simply call themselves Christian churches. The new Christian church spread throughout the southern states, and by 1809, it had already uh, boasted a membership of over 20,000 people, which was a lot back in that day. So some defining characteristics of the O'Kelly movement. Number one, the lordship of Jesus Christ as the only head of the church. Number two, they would simply take the name Christian to the exclusion of all others. And number three, the Bible would be their only creed or rule of faith and practice. They didn't want to have anything getting in the way of that. So interestingly, O'Kelly refused to be convinced that adult immersion was the only scriptural baptism. And years later, many of those of his movement who favored immersion over sprinkling of infants gradually merged with Christians of the Stone Movement. So we have that one going on, North Carolina, Virginia, on south. And then uh, there was a completely other independent restoration movement from the O'Kelly movement, Christian churches that began in the New England states uh, with guys like this, Elias Smith. Uh, this movement began with the Unity Dreamers, Elias Smith and Abner Jones. Uh, the O'Kelly movement, restoration movement, came out of Methodism over church government issues, but these new Christian churches and the New England states had come out of a Baptist background over issues relating to doctrinal Calvinism. Here's another one of their founders, Abner Jones. So let me just say a word about Calvinism. Uh, not that I'm necessarily qualified to explain it very well, 
I think uh, there was a Calvinism that was practiced in that day and time that the Restoration leaders really took issue with. It was a Calvinism uh, that uh, uh, really influenced people's thinking away from uh, discipleship, away from evangelism, and away from um, an effort to win people's souls. And there was issues, they took issue with total depravity, unconditional election, issues with a limited atonement, and a kind of predestination that really violates free will, human effort, and even in the end, compassion. Uh, it's a kind of predestination that it's, at its grassroots reality invites people to judge who is saved and who is lost. You look around and, oh, that person's definitely saved, and that person's definitely lost. And more so, there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, I don't know that they would actually, actually say something like this, but this kind of logical thought for a Calvinist at the time would be, God has preordained through all time and eternity that you were born to be lost, and there's absolutely nothing anyone can do about it. And further, since you are clearly not one of God's chosen, I shouldn't waste my time on you. Well, this kind of Calvinism was a doctrinal structure that in practice, it defeated efforts of discipleship and evangelism, and even personal growth or group spiritual formation. If I'm saved and there's nothing I can do about it, why do I try to do much of anything? It just is what it is. I'm sorry you ended up with this lot, but, uh, you know, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, but you're not one of God's. You know, I don't, I don't know. But there was something along those lines that they were reacting to very strongly. Well, several years later, restoration ministers from Virginia, part of the O'Kelly movement, went to visit Christian churches from the Smith-Jones movement in, up in New England. And they said, had this to say about it. They rejoiced to know that the New England Christians accepted, as they did, the headship of Christ over the church, the New Testament as the only rule of faith, and the name Christian, just simply Christian. Well, two years later, in 1811, Christians from the O'Kelly movement gave uh, Elias Smith the right hand of Christian fellowship. And the churches that resulted from this uh, restoration unification called themselves the Christian Connection which for the most part remained separate from a lot of what was happening in the Stone-Campbell movement. Well, these New England Restorationists in 1931, they merged with Congregationalists to form the Congregational Christian Church. And in 1957, that group merged with an Evangelicals and Reformed to create the United Churches of Christ. So if you've ever wondered about these signs you see every once in a while. There's Church of Christ. You got, you know, there's Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, we also see once in a while these United Churches of Christ, and that would be that group if you were ever curious about that. Well, there you go. Now you know. All right, so let me talk about the breadth of this restoration impulse. So here's a, a map of the United States in 1800. Uh, we're not even on the, the list yet, way out here in Oregon. So that's a map of Scotland, north of, the United, or north of England. Uh, 
And uh, we talked about the Haldane brothers. So the Haldane movement started in Scotland, this restoration movement. And then the O'Kelly movement from Virginia on south. And then the Smith-Jones movement of New England. The Campbell movement from Pennsylvania. And then the Stone Movement from Kentucky, parts of Tennessee, and parts of Ohio. So this was all happening at roughly the same period, this restoration impulse. And they came out from different movements. The Haldane Movement came out of the Church of Scotland, the O'Kelly Movement from Methodism, uh, the, the Smith-Jones Movement out of Baptists, the Campbell Movement out of first seceder Presbyterians and later on a Baptist group. And then the Stone Movement came out of the Presbyterian, American Presbyterian groups. So as we left off last week, the young minister Barton Stone had two big problems he was wrestling with. The first problem was the doctrine of the Presbyterian Church. He said that free salvation for all hardly seemed consistent with predestination and limited atonement. So here's a map that shows you something of the population density in Kentucky in 1800. So in the last few years of the 1700s, Stone moved to Cane Ridge there. But you can kind of see the, that's the most densely populated with a population of 18 to 45 in a square mile. That's a dense population, boy. <laughs> Things have changed. So the second big problem that Stone faced wasn't just the doctrinal positions of his church. The bigger problem that he faced was the spiritual apathy among the Christians and churches that he worked with. But Stone went and he witnessed revivals breaking out in other places. And then together with his congregation, they started to pray and they started to fast and they started to plan to have a camp meeting of their own at their little, at their little Cane Ridge congregation. So here's a drawing of the old Cane Ridge church made sometime in 1889 drawing of it. Uh, they planned their meeting for August of 1801 and it began on a rainy Friday night with a small gathering that easily fit inside the old log church building, or that little log church building. Well, they decided to set aside the church building exclusively for the use of the communion, sharing communion and constant prayer. And the prayers continued throughout the night, asking the Lord to bring revival. Well, the next morning, the Kentucky countryside around Cane Ridge, it seemed to come to life. This rural countryside um, began to move as first hundreds and then thousands made their way down the narrow, muddy road leading to Cane Ridge. Here's a horse-drawn wagon from a little bit later area. People were coming in wagons and pitching tents. Some of them were coming by horse or on foot for hundreds of miles away. Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, and more, they came, 
black and white, they came. Those of sincere faith, they came, along with spectators and mockers. They all came. Well, they built preaching platforms. Uh, they, they had set up this platform outside for preaching. But the platforms that they had built, they weren't enough. Uh, Barton Stone and the Cane Ridge Church, in their humility, they also invited 17 other ministers from various denominations to help minister to the crowds that they were expecting. But those 17 other ministers, Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist, they weren't enough either. The population of Cane Ridge was growing by hundreds every hour, and a city of tents suddenly appeared in the American frontier. There was tangible excitement in the air as people gathered in thousands to worship. And they began to throw together other platforms to preach from, using tree stumps or fallen trees or carriages as pulpits. Sometimes there were as many as eight sermons taking place at the same time, and still there was no confusion. No one preached Calvinism or denominational doctrine, but just the simple gospel of salvation through faith with a call to repent from worldly ways and to turn to Jesus Christ as the only way to a right relationship with God the Father. And inside that little log church building, the prayers never stopped. Day and night, they continued to pray for revival. The preaching, the praying, the singing, it continued day and night as the crowd swelled to more than 20,000 people, more than 10% of the entire population of the brand new state of Kentucky was there in attendance. And soon, all kinds of strange phenomena began to break out in pockets throughout the camp. Strange sounds and utterances could be heard in the crowds. People began falling to the ground and laying there motionless in a trance for hours. Sometimes they would cry out for mercy. Sometimes they would confess their sins and commit their lives to Jesus. And there weren't enough ordained ministers to go around. Laymen and lame women just began to pray with and minister to those in need around them. Young children began preaching to the crowds eloquent sermons that should have been impossible for them to say. One young girl laying motionless on the ground for hours came out of her trance with the words, Precious Jesus. She couldn't contain what was happening inside of her, and she began to preach. Her voice boomed like it was amplified, and soon a crowd of hundreds gathered around her. She preached with such boldness and conviction that soon people were seized with the same strange phenomena that had, that had afflicted her. People described those who were falling as being like trees felled by the swing of a mighty axe. 
Soon, across the camp, hundreds of people fell to the ground, and they would lie there motionless for hours sometimes, until later they would wake up with a groan or a shriek or a word of scripture or a song. Men and women by the hundreds and then the thousands, as many as 3,000, one estimate said, were laying on the ground. Veterans of the Revolutionary War said it reminded them of the battlefields that they had seen when they were younger men with the slain laying everywhere. The scene was inexplicable to the analytical mind. People came from bars to see what was happening, all kinds of spectators to see what was happening. They began to laugh and mock openly what was taking place, and then moments later find themselves swept up in the same phenomena. One physician who came as a spectator, he began to openly mock what he witnessed And with dismissive scorn, he said to one young woman standing nearby that if this happened to happen to him, she should need to be there to make sure he didn't hurt himself when he fell to the ground. But as he mocked, he became more and more uncomfortable. Something was happening inside of him that he couldn't explain. And when he couldn't stand it anymore... He took off running away from the crowds out into the woods and he didn't make it very far before he himself too was struck down. He lay there on the ground until he reached the conclusion that he needed to fully surrender his life to the Lord. As the sun began to set, Periodically, singing would break out in the wooded fields surrounding the little Cane Ridge Church. The hymns would move like a wave from one side of the camp to the other. The sound of hundreds and then thousands of voices singing praises to God in the open air, it had a powerful effect on many of the people there. As these hymns echoed throughout the countryside, people would stop and silently marvel at the heavenly sound. The singing didn't seem to just come from the voice, but it seemed, by by their own words, to come from the very depths of the soul. The services concluded on Sunday, but no one wanted to stop. No one wanted to go anywhere. So day and night, they just kept going, preaching, praying, singing. They went for days until there was no more food to be found in the surrounding towns. For the next two years, you couldn't step inside the state of Kentucky without someone talking to you about the Cane Ridge Revival. Because of Cane Ridge, tent meeting revivals began to take place across the American frontier. And for years following, when Christians would pray for revival, they would pray, Lord, please make it like Cane Ridge. History records it as the pinnacle and the crescendo of what is called the Second Great Awakening. 
So what do you make of all of this? It sounds too spectacular to be true. And had it not been for the many eyewitnesses who recorded the event in great detail, it might be just easier to dismiss it. It was our Pentecostal moment, you could say. My kids sent me that mime thing, I don't know. For most of the history of churches of Christ and Christian churches, we have embraced a very rationalistic approach to our faith. And what they called the emotionalism of Cain Ridge, it's largely been viewed as an embarrassing little story of our movement that we try to minimize and sweep under the carpet. But what if it was more than that? The Kentucky Department of Highways put this little meeting, this sign out there, Cane Ridge Meeting House, built by Presbyterians in 1791. Here, Barton W. Stone began his ministry in 1796, a famous revival attended by pioneers of many faiths, 1801. The Springfield Presbytery dissolved and the Christian church launched. June 28th, 1804. Something happened that changed the trajectory of that church and they were never the same again. I think Barton Stone, you know, we, we hear that. Sometimes we're afraid of stuff like that. We try to minimize that. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know quite what to do with it all either. But Barton Stone, he embraced this event as a work of God because I think he could see the fruit of it. It was a dark time before this. But now, people were talking about their faith. People were searching for the Lord. People were repenting of their sins and their worldly ways and things. They were committing their lives and recommitting their lives to the Lord Jesus. Study, evangelism, discipleship, all of these things were growing. Churches were filling up. New churches were being planted. Slave owners were freeing their slaves as a result of these revivals. People's lives were changing. And it was this event that woke up the little Cane Ridge Presbyterian Church to realize that what God was up to in the world is bigger than just us and just our little group. And we need a box a whole lot bigger than denominationalism to hold this kind of fire. Barton Stone had this to say about it. To give a true description of this meeting cannot be done. It would border on the marvelous. Many, 
Very many will through eternity remember it with thanksgiving and praise. Years later, he didn't push it. It wasn't necessary to your faith or for being a Christian or anything like that. And even though he was pressured, you know, you just need to recant and say that that was not from the Lord. He never did it. He never would. He always said, no, that, that was something special. Well, the impact that Cane Ridge had on Barton Stone. I think these are things that he began to discover as a result of that event. He could see that the Holy Spirit desires unity. He could see that there is power when Christians unite together in prayer. There is power there. He could see that great things could be accomplished for the Lord when you stop preaching denominational doctrine and instead you just preach the simple truth of the Bible. A simple gospel of faith in Jesus and repentance. Well, we're just going to stop here this morning. Uh, this Cane Ridge Revival, it is what it is. It's in our history. I don't think we need to fear it. If the Lord wanted to do something like that, I would welcome it. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to try to manufacture something like that but I'm not going to fear it either. We need help. We need help. Our world is a mess. How many more have to be lost? How much more do we just let things slowly fade? How many more churches have to close their doors and sell their buildings? How much more do we feel like we have to say, you know what, those guys over at wherever, First B or Ecclesia or Garden Way or Santa Clara, they're wrong and let me tell you why. How long do we have to look at people like that and think those are my enemies, those are not like me, those are different from me. We have a real enemy. And he's gotten our churches. We have an enemy, and he's stealing generations of our young people. I want, I want revival. I want divine help for the trouble that we face today. I think there's more available to us than we realize. Because this dream of Christian unity, it didn't begin, as I've said, with these restoration guys. 
This began with Jesus and the prayer that he prayed. His desire for us is this. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Somehow, the way we love each other, the way we take care of each other, the way we are there for each other in a real way, in a real kind of significant community, that is supposed to announce, that's supposed to be the announcement to this world that Jesus is who he said he was. All right, I don't know what your needs are this morning. Rob, you can kind of come up here. Uh, We always offer an invitation for the prayers of this church. You can come up if you want to put the Lord on in baptism. We love to do that here. Um, uh, Whatever your needs are, you can kind of come up and talk to me about those. I hope that you're being blessed by some of these things that we're talking about. I hope that it's igniting your imagination I hope that you can see the breadth of where we have come from as a movement. There was some wild stuff in there. I don't think we have to fear it, and I don't think we have to fake it. But Lord, the Lord will get us where we need to go. And the Lord God is directing. And we need to turn to the Word of God more. We need to go deeper in our relationships more. We need to depend on Him more and learn to listen to the Spirit more. More, more, more. Not less of any of those things. If you let go of any of those things, things go sideways and get broken very quickly. So let's uh, stand and sing together.